0: So this week, we actually have an episode that I recorded in March. It feels like a really long time ago that I was in Church House and doing a weird sort of dance around with today's guest, the Reverend Nigel Genders, as we decided whether or not we could shake hands or whether or not that was just not allowed. So this conversation doesn't actually consider COVID-19 in any detail. It is a corona-free zone. We talk about sex and relationships, education, rural schools that are part of the Church of England's network, how they've worked on getting pupil voice at the heart of what they do and their role in ethical leadership and the Ethical Leadership Commission. Since our recording, uh, the Education team at Church of England have been busily supporting schools through these challenging times as those schools have fulfilled a vital role in service of their communities and they've been particularly involved in providing all the collective worship for the Oak National Academy as ever before we begin just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics the views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth, authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. And a final note on sound quality. We are in a very echoey room <laughs> with lots of, of wooden bookshelves. So uh, apologies for the, for the echo there. I hope you enjoy the episode. Right, I am here in Church House today uh, with Reverend Nigel Genders, uh, the Chief Education Officer of the Church of England. Hello. Hello. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: (laughs) Could you start by telling listeners a little about yourself and your role as Chief Education Officer? Yeah,
1: so I've been uh, Chief Education Officer for the Church of England now for the last six years and the way the Church of England works is often kind of complicated to people outside the organization um so just a, a brief explanation about that in that the church is split up into uh, 41 dioceses, and each diocese will have its own board of education mm-hmm. which has a responsibility for its schools so typically about 100 schools per diocese and and what we do nationally is uh, hold all of that together so that when we want to speak for the Church of England Mm. in terms of education, we can talk to the government or we can talk to the church or we can talk to any other uh, body or person um, on the basis of we understand what's going on in in all of those schools across the diocese. So we kind of hold it all together nationally and Mm -hmm. set policy nationally and direction nationally. Um, But the individual relationship works out at a local diocesan level. And so that's the kind of the complexity of the Church of England. Um, and, and I've been doing this role for, excuse me, for, as I say, six years and before that I was um, working in the same department but in a, a in the kind of policy space mm-hmm. and before that I was director of education for one of those dioceses so working uh, very closely with the schools uh, in Canterbury Diocese and before that I was um, a vicar and, mm-hmm. and, and got into education through uh, being involved as a, as a parish priest uh, passionate about education, working with a local school, and then ended up doing a variety of jobs which included uh, being a chaplain to two large non-church state secondary schools, and chair of governors of a secondary school, chair of governors of a church primary school, governing body of a church university, so through that kind of governance, chaplaincy, Mm. teaching, teaching. System leadership route have ended up in this national role over over that that period of time.
0: Wow, quite quite a journey, <laughs> and uh, one of the things that struck struck me when I was researching for this podcast is is, is quite the the large number of of pupils who are in um, Church of England schools which had somehow passed me by. Could you update? Yeah, me Yes, certainly. The and, and
1: so so just to explain in terms of what we do uh, from this office nationally, we have. Uh, we'll talk predominantly about schools today, but we we have responsibility for the church's work in education across the phases. So schools is our main thing mm-hmm. in terms of our statutory provision, but we're also responsible for the church's work in education with universities, with further education colleges, and also the non-statutory stuff in terms of children and young people in uh, voluntary settings yeah. like Sunday schools and, and, and so forth. Uh, and, and the schools part is where we've historically come from. So 200 years ago, the National Society, which is our kind of charity, underpinning what we do, was founded um, in order to provide education on a mass scale for the poor and disadvantaged of the country. We we, we started off that kind of mass education system, and then the state joined in 50 years later. <laughs> um, and so consequently, we because we've been around a long time, we've got you know a huge stake in terms of the provision yeah. of education so so in terms of numbers of, of the school sector uh, there are 4700 Church of England schools and um, which means that we educate just over a million children mm. every day so there's a million children in Church of England state schools um, now now those numbers um, you know, break, break down in terms of the secondary and primary phases uh, quite dramatically. So mm-hmm. because of how this started, as I say, 200 years ago, um, the idea was to have a, a, a school for what was then the school age children yeah. in, in every part of the country. And uh, we weren't as good, in terms of my predecessors, you know, as the school leaving age increased, yeah. of keeping up to speed with increasing the number of secondary schools. So. So we have of the 4,700 schools, 4,500 of them are primary schools, and two hundred mm. about 212 of them are, are secondary schools. Um, so so 800,000 pupils in a primary school, 200,000 yeah. pupils in a Church of England secondary school. And so that's kind of a, we're, we're trying to address that, mm. and we've got a, a constant kind of... Um, desire and aspiration and putting into practice the kind of uh, opening of new secondary schools and expanding our secondary provision but particularly because we recognise that you know one in four children in this country go to a Church of England primary school, yeah. um, but only one in 16 can go to a Church of England secondary school and, and people want to go to Church mm. of England secondary schools so we need more of them. So. Mm. Mm.
0: Interesting stuff. Um, we were also speaking earlier about the number of teachers who uh, uh, actually did their teacher training at a cathedral university.
1: Yeah, so, so as well as the um, as, as starting all these schools back in the mm. 1800s, of course, what the National Society discovered pretty quickly, although when you think about the pace of change we have at the moment, it always strikes me this was quite a long journey. <laughs> uh they worked out that actually they needed teachers to, to mm-hmm. teach all these children in these schools. So so within so founded in eighteen eleven when they started this mass kind of um building program, um they ended up by the time you got to eighteen forties or so, mm-hmm. about twelve thousand schools in this country being run by the National Society and And it's only at that point that they you know organize themselves to think actually how do we train teachers yeah. so that teachers can actually teach their children properly and And so the first of those teacher training colleges really opened in the late eighteen thirties um and and have been so so many of what are now part of the cathedral's group universities yeah. started as teacher training colleges for the for the training of teachers for our schools. And have over the years developed into you know, broader uh, colleges teaching the whole curriculum, and now full-blown universities. So there are 15 universities with a um, <coughs> either a Catholic or an Anglican foundation. 11 of them have got an Anglican foundation, um, and they still have teacher training at their heart. Although that's not, their, you know, they've got many other strings to their bow, um, but they would still see themselves as a really major provider of. of um, you know, training of teachers for yeah. the future. So in fact, 20% of all primary school teachers have been trained through one of those cathedral group universities. So it's a kind of massive, yeah. you know, for, for, for a small number of institutions, even with the kind of the way the training of teachers has developed and with much more mm. school-based approaches and, and local um, kind of on-the-job on, on learning, if you like, the fact that this small number of universities is still training 20% of mm. the teachers in this country is a, a kind of huge impact in terms of provision. Exactly mm. so.
0: Um, well, thank you for that, that, that introduction. Um, Going to move on to some, some other topics now. So, um, mm. uh, sex and relationships education has been I- in the spotlight for, for, for a while now. Uh, what what 's the Church of england's um, sort of position on, on government changes and and how are you supporting schools who are consulting with their parent communities
1: yeah we 've been very supportive of the need to um, to develop and to improve relationships and sex education. Mm. Uh, we recognize that actually you know since the last time the legislation was mm. looked at, the world has moved on a bit like there 's things called the internet and there 's <laughs> kind of you know various things which uh, have made a massive impact in terms of how children learn about things. And so we, we're very keen that the relationships and sex education curriculum keeps up to pace with that mm. and can really equip children um, to have resilient relationships and to know what good relationships look like and to be able to be to so given that kind of ability to be discerning yeah. about kind of how relationships develop and, 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 and so forth. And so we've been supportive mm. of that as, a, as yeah. a kind of direction of travel um, and the need for, um, you know, for, for, for for a really you know developed curriculum in that space mm. and uh, i've been particularly keen to ensure that uh, actually we offer a curriculum which is good for 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 you know, all children that we don 't yeah. want to kind of end up with a situation where uh, people feel marginalized by mm. by the relationship to sex education we want our schools to be working really. Hard and really closely with their local communities to make sure that what we're offering Mm. is really supportive of what parents want to do, because parents are fundamentally the primary educator of their children in this space, and so we want to work with parents and schools and the local community in in harmony. And and so we've developed what we've um, uh, published as our charter for Mm. relationships and sex education, which is fundamentally about how we ensure that that is done in a way which is faith sensitive that yeah. helps to understand the um uh, the cultural and the um religious background of the of the students that are being served not just in church schools mm. but in any school every school that's delivering relationships and sex education should be able to do that in a way which is respectful of yeah. and sensitive to the to the culture and beliefs of the families of the children that they serve and so we think that's a really important thing we've as i say developed a charter for that which mm. is freely available on our website and um you know, we think is 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 good practice for any school one of the things that we focused on particularly on that has been the pe- place of parental consultation mm. because so often you know you know, schools can end up developing something thinking this is great we'll talk to all of our you know teachers and our governors and our students about this and come up with something great and then we'll talk to parents about it as kind of the final step and what we're saying is actually it's much more helpful if you talk to parents first Mm -hmm. and at the end of that process so they're involved in that all the way through so that parents feel engaged with and able to understand what what's you know what's the aim of this how's this going to help um my, my child mm. to be able to live life in modern Britain in a way which helps them to understand the different types of families and the, uh, you know, you get a real sense of, of developing positive relationships. So we're, that's the approach we're taking is to say, yes, it's, you know, individual schools are always the place where they'll know their community best mm. and we're trying to offer some help which enables that relationships and sex education curriculum to be framed in a way mm. which is really supportive of that parental relationship and the community that they're serving.
0: Great stuff. And we we're speaking about the sort of sheer number of, of, of Church of England schools that there are, that many of those are quite small or very yeah, small. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, at a time of, of, of limited resources ac- across the, the school system, how how do those schools manage to provide a high quality education a broad and balanced curriculum while, while dealing with um, yeah technology. it's a really good
1: question and, and just in terms of some more numbers for you mm. the, um, the interesting statistic is that of the what the DFE would call very small schools mm. which is uh, it's always quite a, a kind of causes a wry smile when I talk to some of our schools about this because they would define very small as less than one hundred and ten pupils. Mm. We've got a lot of schools with you know with really small numbers compared to that. So if you're if you're running a school in the middle of Northumberland somewhere, 110 would feel quite large. Yeah. Um, but of all the schools that have got less than 110 pupils in them, the Church of England provides 70% of those schools. So so mm. so because of the way mm. uh, the, the, the kind of the Church estate grew yeah. up. We intentionally put schools in places of rural poverty and of places mm. where there's kind of that, that kind of need for a, for a local provision, and so we're we're providing you know a huge number of the, of the very small schools in in the country, and it's a real challenge in terms mm. of the question you raise about resources and about how those schools can be um, resilient in order yeah. to deliver a really high quality of education for the future. So we've published two reports in this space. Mm-hmm. The second of which was published um, two years ago, yeah, which is uh, um, called Embracing Change. Mm. And the clues in the title that our sense is that in order to continue to provide really high quality education for the future, we need to embrace the change of local demographics Mm. and of the need to think a bit differently about education. So the days of every school must have their own head teacher yeah. and their own governing body and, and, and be an autonomous unit, mm. um, really are you know, gone because that's, that doesn't work in the, in the environment that we're in. And, and so we're really encouraging schools to work much more collaboratively together, to be innovative in the kind of relationships yeah. they have with one another and to do that in a structural way, whether that's through federations mm. or whether it's through academisation and multi-academy trusts. But to find a way to say let's get groups of schools who can work together. They yeah. can share some functions in terms of whether it's back office functions mm. or whether it's in terms of the overall leadership of the school, or whatever it might be, that they can do kind of as a group, and then have expertise at local level that you know, that can be targeted on that particular school or indeed shared across a group. So you know if you're in a school of um, thirty-five children. Uh, with one teacher and p- and part of a of a of a head teacher, the chances are that that teacher won't be an expert in modern languages mm. maths english history geography science you know they 're going to need to get some expertise mm. elsewhere so so being able to share the expertise around a group of schools seems to us to be a much more sensible way of approaching it and some of our schools have gone for an even more innovative approach, which is to say well let 's do key stage one in one building key stage oh. two in another building get the kind of cohorts of numbers that are big enough to make that a really viable mm-hmm. um, option and put on a minibus to get people between the two because I'm oh. you know, and, and just coming up with more imaginative ways to say what we really want is high quality education oh. um, accessible to children so that they don't have to spend hours on a bus getting from yeah. you know, one part of Cumbria over a mountain to another part of Cumbria but how, how, can, how can we bring expertise mm. into their classroom in a way which is good for them in their locality and gives them exactly that quality of education that you're describing? And I think there's, there's more we can do around using technology yeah. in that space as well. Although the irony is that the, the schools that are the most rural that could really benefit from a yeah. technological solution don't have access to the broadband that they need in order to deliver that um, that, that solution. So what we did is when we launched our document making uh, sorry, embracing um embracing change around rural schools was to have a symposium which we were encouraging the whole of government to think about well what's our vision for rural England mm-hmm. or what's the vision for, for 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 what we're seeking to do with you know, with rural communities yeah. that needs to include transport and housing and um yeah, yeah. Digital and broadband yeah. and all those things is not just something which education can deliver a solution for. It needs the whole of government to work together to say, actually, there's there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of join up we need here. Education plays its part in that, and that's you know, one of the things that has developed from that, is the sense that we really need to focus on leadership within those rural schools. So we've on the back of that now established um, rural. Uh, leadership networks, which mm-hmm. is trying to help school leaders in kind of peer support, local networks of school leaders to um, work together about how they develop their own leadership and develop the leadership within their schools to to really embrace that change and take on a different way of looking at education into the future, and that's been really effective um, in, in in kind of stimulating ideas right. and and working with with children in rural communities as well um, to to make sure that they can play their part in terms of leadership within the community we're really oh. keen for the benefit of those small rural communities with their own school and education system is that it it should make an impact on the local community oh. we're not educating these children so that they can move off to a town somewhere eventually but how do they play their part in that in that local community and you know, right now as children not just you know, their potential for the future and so we we're, we're in partnership with um, step up to Stur- to serve mm-hmm. and the i will campaign to to have kind of youth led social action as part of that thinking as well
0: fantastic and mm-hmm. i guess recognizing that in a, in a lot of places that that school will be a focus for the community and, and a hub as there might not be Many other institutions or organisations yeah. to, to take that on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so and so the, the the role that the school has both in modelling community and and supporting and engaging that community mm. is really vital. And and yeah, we've we've seen some really good examples of the kind of the interrelationship between, for example, isolated elderly people um, who've got you know, particular particular needs and mm. small groups of young children in a school um, who have got lots of energy and can go and, go and be part of kind of a, a community project which brings joy to both ends of mm. that age section, which is really lovely to see. I think that playing that part in the community is really important. Mm. Well,
0: it's good to, good to hear about some of that, that creativity and in particular, not just taking these are the schools, this is the system that we've sort of been dealt, really thinking about Okay, if the aim is to educate these children, how, how can we do that that differently and um, uh, in a different way?
1: Absolutely. And I, and I think that's why fundamentally we've, over the last few years, sought to re articulate what we think we're about in education. So, so we started, and this is a classic place that everyone, you know, when you think of us kind of the scale of operation that we're running mm-hmm. as the Church of England, as the largest uh, single provider of, of education in the country mm. um, runs then it's, it's no surprise that people always ask questions about numbers and, mm. and how many schools have you got and that's you know, obviously you know, a place to start but what we've sought to do over the last few years is to say actually we're much more interested in why we're involved in education so we, we, we do educate a lot of people mm. and the church has been committed to this as I say for over you know, over 200 years in, in this state sector but for much longer in terms of the independent mm. sector as well um, but we've tried to give a kind of fresh articulation of why we're so passionate about education. So back in 2016, we published our vision for education, which we have published under the, the strap line of deeply Christian serving the common good, um, uh, to explain why it is that we're involved in education, what we think education's for, how we, we think that the education that we're seeking to mm-hmm. offer should lead to the flourishing of every child, and and we frame that around. You know, four core strands of um wisdom, knowledge and skills of hope and aspiration of um living well together in in community and dignity and respect and and an education which touches those four things Mm. we think will really develop flourishing children and young people who can play their part in society. And so, so as well as thinking about what we do Mm. and all the numbers of schools we provide. The why is fundamental to all of the work we've been doing, which we'll talk more about in a moment in some of the other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but but getting that at the heart is making vision really the key to what, what we're seeking to do.
0: And you you've recently had a had a conference and and released another um, uh, vision around leadership called called connected committed. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that,
1: that yeah. event? Yeah, and, and that's, so, so what we've been doing in order to galvanise that, that sense of vision and purpose is to uh, develop a national conference mm. and that's something, you know, surprisingly, that the Church of England hasn't really done before in terms of, uh, as I said right at the beginning of this, of this conversation, the, the individual dioceses mm. all do brilliantly in terms of putting on local head teacher conferences for their family of schools in their diocese. We've never really captured that as a whole and mm. said, how do, we, how do we work as a national movement in education? And so we've now run four national conferences on the back of our work around vision. Um, and the fourth one was this, uh, you know, earlier in, in February this year, where we had 800 school leaders as part of a national conference mm. who were coming to, together to have that sense of vision and purpose. And at that, we launched this document that you've referred to which really is the sister document to our vision. Yeah. So the vision you know, sets out the kind of the, the framework. And, and what we've sought to do is, to, is, in all of the work we've been doing in terms of leadership development on the back of that vision, is not pretend that we've got all the answers, because we haven't. Um, but we've got quite a lot of good questions, we think. <laughs> so so we've, we've, we've sought to just ask good questions mm. that help school leaders to think through the kind of things that they're always thinking about. If you looked at any school leader in terms of the top 20 things mm. on their agenda, you know, then you're not going to find a huge difference between what, what it is that they're thinking about. Um, but to give them a lens through which to look and to see those things mm. is the purpose of the vision. And then what we've done through the Called, Connected and Committed um, document is to offer 24 leadership practices which are about how, um, how you can apply the vision mm. to, to, to key areas of the, church, of the school's life and to think through theologically as well as in terms of practical educational leadership terms you know, what, what it means to be um, promoting resilience or what, yeah. or what it means to be you know, really seeking the flourishing of the disadvantaged children in your community. And, and so we've got sort of a series of, of, of really good questions that will help school leaders to, to grapple with those issues. And it's, it's yeah, we launched it at, at that conference, and we're using it in our networks. Mm-hmm. So as part of our leadership development work now, we we've got you know, groups of schools working in 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 these networks, whether they're secondary or primary or rural or regional. Um, about a thousand schools are involved in those in those networks across the country now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're using this material as a kind of fundamental um, underpinning of that work, and it, it's proving really you know, useful for school leaders to be thinking about what they do and why they do it through this kind of lens.
0: And I, and I noticed you had a really strong kind of pupil voice and, and, and pupils playing a really active role in, in, in that conference where you, where you launched the document, and I know it's been a kind of focus for, for, for quite some time, and I, I'm just just curious to know about uh, examples that you're aware of of, of of schools really using that that, that pupil voice.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's really fundamental to everything. So schools, of course, are all. I mean, this is what schools are for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, is is how we engage with young people and and how. Um, you ensure that that kind of pupil voice is, is really strong throughout mm. the school. It's It kind of started with the classic school council movement many, many years mm. ago, but it's become so much more than that. And I think other parts of society have got so much to learn from this. So, you know, I don't go to a school um, where they're, you know, there isn't that kind mm. of expectation that students will be involved in the leadership of the school. You know, there's there's hardly a school I imagine in the country mm. now that would consider appointing a head teacher mm. or appointing a member of staff um, without there being some kind of uh, engagement with students as part of that. Not just in terms of provide a class for them to teach so you can mm. see how they get on, but students involved in the interviewing of their yeah. staff and and getting their opinion because you. Know, their opinion really counts in terms of how we how we're seeking to develop the school. And that's true at a school level. For us it seems really important at a, a, a kind of national level mm-hmm. as well as at a diocesan level that we should always be looking to to hear what young people have got to say on particular subjects and to make sure that what we're doing really chimes with their lived reality mm-hmm. and their lived experience. So so as our yeah you know, we had keynote speakers at that conference the star of the show who everyone talks to me about was a, a little boy uh, in year six who um, spoke to 800 people as if he was just you know, in, his, in his own kitchen talking to his parents, <laughs> um, but was commanded the whole audience mm. um, and was funny and spoke about what it meant for him to be educated in a way which helped him to be wise. And it was inspiring. And you think, mm. actually... You know, the children and young people that we're serving are inspiring in themselves and we need to hear their voice and hear what they've got to say and so we make that a really fundamental part to what we're doing nationally mm-hmm. um, but also as part of, of what we're seeking to do locally as well and I mentioned the rural schools networks where a key part of that yeah. has been developing student-led social action Yeah, you know, when when we say students we mean primary students as well as mm-hmm. secondary Um and we're just about to uh, appoint a head of student engagement and student leadership as well to help develop that work much more intentionally so that we, we replicate what we've just done on a national level um, in in regional conferences as well and find ways to make sure that, that we as the church in education hear what young people have got to say. And they've got a lot to say mm-hmm. and, and we need to learn from that. And mm. yeah, we're, we're, we're working at the moment on, on how we response to climate emergency and and issues around the environment and uh, what would be really patronising would be for adults to pitch up at school and say this is really important boys and girls when actually it's the children and young people who are leading the way in in driving our thinking about climate change and and the importance of addressing that issue and so we need to hear that and learn from that.
0: Exactly so and we were just discussing um, earlier there where you were talking about uh, a lens for leaders to Consider issues and, and ask ask questions, and this growing growing movement around kind of the ethical leadership commission and, and, and conversations about where where ethics and accountability collide. I know you're involved uh, in the in the commission yourself. Why why do you think um, that this, this conversation is happening right now?
1: I was delighted to be involved in that in mm. the ethical leadership commission because it's such an important piece of work because so often the pressures um on teachers and on schools can lead to all sorts of unintended consequences mm. where people f- for the best of reasons end up doing things which in the cold light of day you'd think I'm not sure that's really the best thing for those children and and so just framing again it's about framing mm. good questions and mm. good conversation and saying not here are ten rules that you must must have, you know must be able to tick off if you want to be an ethical leader. It's not about that at all. It's about saying that actually, just examining your own practice and motives and and the implications of what you're doing um, in a way which helps you to think through the the ethical nature of that is a, is a really good discipline for, mm. for school leaders and. Uh, I just think it's a really important thing to keep reminding ourselves that actually, you know, if you if you're going to, um, particularly in an exam-based system, mm. you know, everyone's driving for particular results. Well, uh, at what cost? You know, when mm. when do we start to ask the question? What's the impact of this in terms of either the way that I'm driving people through particular hoops and narrowing down mm. their choices to get to those hoops, or um, the way that I'm not making some children welcome in my school because it might affect my exam results. You know that that can all. No one would ever go into teaching expecting to do yeah. that, but sometimes the unintended consequences of what we develop as policies can have that effect. Mm. And it's only when you look at them, as I say, in the cold light of day, you think actually, well, I never wanted to do that. Yeah. And um, so we need to adjust our practice and our thinking at that point. I think it's a, it's a really important discipline for for school leaders to be to be doing that.
0: And as you say, it's a sort of a a creeping a creeping thing, almost imperceptible that just choices and decisions are made that, that then then they lead to these places that as you say, you know, everyone going into education wants to do good good things and positive things for children and it's it's often the system that, that can lead to these things and it, it, it seems that the Ethical um leadership commission and and, and, and and having that framework gives people something to sort of push back against when everyone can agree, look, this is driving bad behaviour. Yeah, absolutely, and I think yeah.
1: sometimes also having, having another pair of eyes on something, so people coming from another context mm. and, and, and just talking through your decisions can help you to get that kind of sense of, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about it in that way, um, but I can see that that's, that's not having the effect that I, I'd planned, mm. and, and, and challenging our own kind of um, choices on that basis is really helpful with an external perspective as well.
0: Indeed, and any any kind of final thoughts that you'd like to share with our with our listeners?
1: I think that the um, I mean as I say the the key thing for us has been about how we develop uh, leadership, which is vision based and vision led and um, I, I, th- I think that's fundamental to what we're seeking to do and and the more that we can engage the whole school system in that con- conversation, the better. Uh, and the more that we can do that as a collaborative partnership the better so mm-hmm. we're really interested in the way that um you know, all the stuff we're doing around leadership development is is open to church schools and to mm-hmm. community schools and and we've we've got you know non-church schools as part of all of those networks and those provisions and 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 they value it enormously because they're saying actually this is an opportunity to talk with peers to to work together to develop our leadership together and uh, that's a really effective thing to do to build the whole of our kind of education Mm. endeavor The, the the bits that i mentioned in our vision which is really you know gets to the heart of why the church of england's involved in all of this is is that it's about the common good yeah so we we went into education back in the 1800s because we wanted to to serve the common good, to to educate people who wouldn't have had access to mm. education otherwise. And that's still our passion about education. It's about the difference that we can make uh, at whatever level. We launched yesterday our vision for higher education, mm. and that's got that same common good um, theme through it. The purpose of education, whether you're at school yeah. or at university, is to actually improve the common good for everybody, and that's, that's fundamental to what we're doing.
0: Thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders knowledge to act. And special thanks to Reverend Nigel Genders for talking to us today. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com and please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.